Only the victim is alive and the murderers are not. It's a pity you didn't know when you started your game of murder that I was playing too. It has been established that the persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. The person disappears, the other two died. Hello, hello, my pretties. It's your criminal researcher and certified nightmare prescriber, Ashley Lana. Tonight is a Fear Cult's most requested episode which means it was voted on Instagram, Twitter, and threads by you, the listeners. And it is psychologically one of the most intriguing cases to examine. So pay attention closely and follow the patterns along with me. With that being said, welcome to Lullaby. In the previous episode, I shed light on the alarming growing issue of child trafficking. It was a distressing topic to delve into, as the crimes that were involved were deeply disturbing, and I was fully aware releasing the episode that it was going to be difficult to listen to. The stigma behind child trafficking and abuse is often put on the back burner, because it's too hard for people to listen to and to accept that it is a growing problem and that it is happening. The more people realize that awareness breaks the stigma, it allows survivors to come forward without being fearful of being victim shamed. And it's what helps stop the progression of the crimes. When people don't talk about it, it gets dusted under the rug and the more people will fall victim to it because it gets overlooked. And that's the problem that society is facing in regards to human trafficking. While that episode may have been difficult to listen to, the ultimate goal was to open the eyes of even just one listener. If that objective was achieved, then the purpose of the episode of the dark web was fulfilled. I'm all about spreading awareness to save and protect the innocent people in this world. Tonight's episode is a fear cult's most requested, and I have researched through the archives, the interviews, the psychiatric reports, and I am ready, rejuvenated mountain goat, ready to go for this worst of the worst episode. Back to back wow episodes, look at us go. <laughs> so normally for a single episode of Lullaby, I read on average two to three books and again, the psychiatric and court transcripts, plus websites and documentaries, those are just add-ons. Like I don't fuck around when it comes to research because I need to know everything to understand each case to its entirety. I need to know the steps, I need to know the progression, and it helps people see these signs in the future. Which is why you, my fear call, love tuning in for all of this information and my hard work pays off. Thank you so much. <laughs> so whatever it is that you believe in, may it bless you. May it bless you for years. So now for this episode, I felt as though my brain was verging on exploding due to just the research that I consumed. So unlike most serial killers, Edmund Kemper, he never shut his mouth up about his crimes. So sit back for your call because you're going to get it. Now, most of my sources for this episode are from Edmund Kemper himself, as he had no issue discussing his crimes. The official texts I read include Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters by Peter Vronsky, The Co-Ed Killer by Margaret Chetney, and Edmund Kemper's 2017 parole hearing, along with multiple confessional tapes that he provided the FBI. So yes, it is true that almost everyone has done the case of Edmund Kemper. But now it's my turn. Because like my examination of Richard Ramirez, I'm not fucking around. So get comfortable. Because sweet dreams are made of these. The following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of mental illness, abduction, crimes against children, rape, pedophilia, body desecration, animal cruelty, and murder. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. My mother was a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. I watched her alcohol increase, her social life drop off, watched her get bizarre. She, she had terrible pain from her life, her upbringing. Uh failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. I hate to, uh, you know, 
distill it down into such one-word realities like that. You know, there's a lot that leads into that happening, but that is what happened. They represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what, she, what was important to her, and I was destroying it. Mr. Kemper, why did you kill those girls? My frustration, my inability to communicate, socially, sexually. I wasn't impotent, but emotionally I was impotent. I was scared to death of failing, failing at a relationship, even just to sit down and talk to them. Ironically, that's why I started picking people up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm picking up young women, and I'm going a little bit further each time, like a daring kind of thing. At first, there wasn't a gun. We're driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out, and I said, no, I can't. Then, a gun is in the car, hidden, and this craving. What kind of craving is that? This awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it, consuming my insides. This fantastic passion. Why do you think the co-eds were so willing to get into the car with you? You would openly discuss the killer at large. Why, why do you think that they were comfortable driving with you? I didn't look like him. The last two co-eds that you picked up, you didn't kill them. And I'm curious, what ran through your mind? You said that you were thinking about your mother. Can you elaborate on that? I said, it's not going to happen to any more girls. I gotta stay between me and my mother. I said, she's gotta die, and I've gotta die, or girls are gonna die. And that's when I decided, I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was gonna kill her. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18, 1948, in Burbank, Southern California, United States. His parents, Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. and Clarnell Elizabeth Stage, were the ones who brought him into his troubled existence. Edmund's father, a World War II veteran, was a skilled electronics technician at the Pacific Gas and Electronic Company in California. Known for his intelligence and reserved nature, he thrived in his role, earning admiration from those around him. Meanwhile, Edmund's mother, Clarnell, worked as an administrative assistant. Clarnell's demeanor was often described as domineering, verbally abusive, and controlling causing significant harm to Edmund and her husband's mental and emotional state. Edmund was the middle child, having two sisters named Susan and Aileen Lee. Rather than having a nurturing and harmonious sibling connection, they frequently had arguments, teasing and bullying Edmund, increasing the already tense dynamic within the family. Right from the moment Edmund was born, his mother Clarnell harbored a deep disdain for him, showing blatant favoritism towards his sisters. Edmund's upbringing was marred by a tumultuous and dysfunctional family life. His mother, Clarnell, was a neurotic woman who battled alcoholism. It was widely believed that she suffered from an undiagnosed borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder, also known as BPD, is a mental health condition characterized by unstable emotions, impulsive behavior, and difficulties maintaining stable relationships. Individuals with BPD experience intense mood swings, distorted self-image, and struggle with self-destructive behaviors. Therapy and medication are commonly used for treatment. However, Clarnell did not seek any. Clarnell's unpredictable actions had even prompted her husband to leave, a veteran of World War II who worked in nuclear testing missions. He described what his life was like with Clarnell, saying, quote, Suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. The turmoil within the Kemper household became too much for his father, and his parents divorced. Although Edmund believed he had a close relationship with his father, all communication between them stopped. In 1957, when Edmund was just eight years old, he developed an unhealthy obsession with his second grade teacher. He would take his father's bayonet and he would spy on her through the windows. His sister would later testify in court that one time she taunted him by saying, why don't you go and kiss her? Edmund responded by telling her, if I kiss her, I would have to kill her. In 1958, Clarnell moved her three children to Helena, Montana, where the abuse towards her son only progressed. Clarnell adamantly refused to pamper her son, fearing it might influence his sexual orientation. Within this unsettling environment, Edmund's mind began to harbor sinister fantasies from an early age. It was his relationship with his mother, Clarnell, that proved to be the most challenging. She possessed a domineering nature and frequently subjected Edmund to verbal abuse. Her constant belittlement and humiliation left a lasting impact on his psychological development. In a later 1981 interview, Edmund said, quote, I've been saying I've wanted to kill my mother since I was eight years old. 
and I'm not proud of that. It started with surrogates at a non-human level, physical objects. My possessions, other people's destruction of things that they cared about. And then it's destructions of things that are living on a lower level. Small animals, and then finally people. So Edmund's family environment was characterized by hostility and tension and just all-around emotional abuse towards Edmund specifically. And they all played a significant role in shaping how his disturbed psyche would evolve. His mother, Clarnell, she was constantly reminded of her ex-husband whenever she looked at her son. And she would always tell him that he was the reason that she couldn't get laid. <laughs> Sorry, lady, but it's you. It's all you. So she had three failed marriages, yet she continued to blame those failures on Edmund. And note, I can't stand Edmund Camper, okay? He's a fruitcake. But I will give him this. He did manage to make me laugh during his 1981 interview where he basically roasted his mother. He said, I had nothing good to say about her and she went through three husbands like a hot knife through butter. But the way he says it is so, as a matter of fact, like everyone should just know that. And that's what made me laugh. <laughs> he's got some bits. He's got some, he's got some quirks. So as Edmund discussed over multiple interviews through the course of his life, the hatred slash love that he had for his mother fueled his disturbing actions. He never lusted over his mother. That is very important to state, okay? So as he found himself decapitating his sister's dolls, he reflected on those moments. Edmund recalled a disturbing sensation of pleasure, describing the sensation of hearing a small pop as he detached the heads and held them by their hair. The sight of the headless doll bodies left behind this intensified perverse satisfaction. He said, quote, I remember there was a sexual thrill. You hear that little pop and their heads were off. And then you hold them up by their hair, whipping their heads off and their bodies just right there. That would get me off, end quote. When Edmund was eight, his mother started locking him in the basement cellar because she told him that she was scared that he was going to start molesting his sisters. And then she made him stay down there until he was 14 years old. Edmund in interviews explained that the basement scared the hell out of him. It was cement, it was bare, where all he did was sleep on a mattress and there was a single dangling light bulb from the ceiling. And there was a furnace that glowed red and he said that that was where he got scared because he thought he saw the devil. It's very Home Alone-esque. Edmund's twisted imagination, it started extending into coercing his sisters into participating in disturbing games, such as electric chair and gas chamber. His morbid curiosity would have his sisters enact scenarios where they would pretend to lead him towards his own death, and he would envision himself being tortured and murdered. This was at 10 years old, and then he started progressing from killing dolls, non-living objects, to killing small living objects. This is the progression of serial killing. And he started killing cats. He buried one of the family cats alive in the backyard, and then after it died, he dug it back up, he cut off its head, and he stuck it on a stick. And three years later, in 1961, Edmund is now 13 years old, he decapitates another family cat, this time with a machete, and he displays it on a platter with the dismembered body parts surrounding it. His mother, Clarnell, then goes into his closet one day, and she sees this like a shrine, and she asks him, mortified, why did he do it, and Edmund told his mother that he killed the cat because the cat liked his sister more than him. Something to remember as we go on is that his mother is constantly telling him that he's not good enough for the world, but specifically for good women. And this is building that resentment where if he is trying to be the nicest person he could be and a girl still has no interest in him, he gets mad because his mom was right. And that's where the rage starts. Because the last thing he wants is his mother to be right. Edmund's frustrated loneliness and his need for validation from women will be his trigger. And later in life, those who didn't fall head over heels for his gentle giant act would get murdered because he viewed them as stuck up and for that, he had to kill them. Get over it, big guy. So he doesn't realize that you can portray yourself to be nice and still be a creep. And the reason I use the word portray is because he is a psychopath and psychopaths and sociopaths manipulate their character based on who their next victim is, whether it be murder or something as simple as even deception. 
Edmund believes that because he is being a very kind and open person, that people must want to engage in conversation with him. And that is how social interactions don't work, Edmund. If someone doesn't want to talk to you, they don't have to. A person cannot live their life thinking that they are everyone's main character. Now, at 14 years old, Edmund decided to run away to find his father in California. His mother's harassment had reached this tipping point and Edmund was just sick of sleeping in the cellar, rightfully so, I'll give him that. However, upon locating his father, he's met with rejection. It was news to Edmund that his father had remarried and now had a stepson, so that's gotta hoit. And his stepmom was intimidated by Edmund because at 14 years old, he was six foot three and this rubbed her the wrong way. Regarding his father and his new stepmother, Edmund stated, quote, my father didn't want me around because I upset his second wife. Before I went to Tescadero, the psychiatric hospital, my presence gave her migraine headaches. When I came out, she was going to have a heart attack if I came around." End quote. Spoiler alert, Edmund will soon take a trip to the fruitcake factory. <laughs> so Edmund's father explained in 1964, the reason he decided to send Edmund to his parents' house was, quote, Edmund's personality had changed so much that I was worried about him being here with my present wife, who tried very hard to be a real friend to him. I saw him one day in a brooding mood and his eyes looked like a sleepwalker. In several talks I had with him toward the last, he seemed fascinated by death and war." End quote. Kinda sounds like the fear call, except we don't kill people. We try to prevent people from being killed. Yeah, go us. So Edmund, he was sent to live with his paternal grandmother and grandfather on his father's side up in a secluded mountain in North Fork, California. According to Edmund, his grandmother was much like his mother, was extremely abusive, and he harbored an intense dislike towards her. She wouldn't let him bring any friends home or get into any social activities outside of school, and he couldn't watch cartoons, and she screened anything on TV that he watched. So Edmund said, quote, she had placed herself in the position of being, in essence, my warden. And she said, if you ever want to go live with your father again, you had better do what I say. End quote. In later interviews, Edmund openly acknowledged his developing violent behavior. He recounted being labeled a chronic daydreamer during high school and seeking counseling twice. Now, these counseling sessions were superficial and they just failed to examine into his personal experiences. Edmund admitted that it was during this time that he indulged in the most violent fantasies, serving as a potential warning sign for his future violent behavior. So perhaps it was Edmund's stepmother's intuition that he was dangerous, but it probably saved her life. So as a result, Edmund explained that he was shipped off to live with his paternal grandparents in isolation on a mountaintop in California. He described the experience as being in complete isolation with his senile grandfather and a grandmother who constantly emasculated him and his grandfather to prove her dominance, which is exactly like his mother, Clarnell. So it's as if Edmund Jr. married Clarnell because <gasps> it's as if the man wanted to marry his mother. So Edmund expressed his inability to please his grandmother, likening the situation to being in jail. He described himself as a walking time bomb, and that eventually exploded. So soon after his father sent him to live with his grandparents, his mother Clarnell called his father and commented that it wouldn't be a surprise if his parents woke up murdered by Edmund. Over the course of 10 months with his grandparents, Edmund was given a 22 caliber from his grandfather, and he spent hours in the bushes just shooting birds, gophers, and other small animals just to annoy his grandmother because his grandmother didn't want him killing animals. When he was caught killing animals, his grandmother insisted that the grandfather take the gun away. She didn't want him to kill animals for fun. So when the gun was taken away, Edmund grew increasingly more agitated, and the 22 served as his aggression outlet. When he found his grandmother's 45 rifle in the dresser, he began taking it out and playing with it. And when she caught him, she got terrified. And then she took it away, and then she started leaving the house with it is it's if everyone related to him is seeing these warnings. Because pretty soon he's gonna learn how to hide all of these signs when he goes to the mental state hospital. It was August 27, 1964. In the kitchen, Edmund's grandmother was reviewing a story she had written titled Fire in the Cannon for the Boy's Life magazine. 
Edmund sat across from her at the kitchen table, their conversation taking a heated turn as he fixed her with a disturbing gaze. Filled with anger, Edmund abruptly stormed away. Trying to distract himself, Edmund decided to go shoot some rabbits. While making his way to the front porch, just as he was about to leave, his grandmother's voice echoed through the screen door, cautioning him about shooting birds once more. Pausing for only a moment, Edmund peered through the screen, his mind plagued by dark fantasies he had harbored towards his grandmother. With her back turned to him, he raised his rifle, aiming directly at the back of her head, and pulled the trigger, the shot piercing through the screen door. Edmund's grandmother slumped forward onto the table where she had been diligently typing. Edmund then fired two more shots, one more into her head, and the other one into her back. Wrapping a towel around her head, he proceeded to drag her lifeless body to the bedroom. Overwhelmed by a surge of madness, he retrieved a knife and stabbed her three more times. The force was so intense that the blade bent under the strain. While he wandered the halls of the ranch house, Edmund said that he contemplated sexually exploring his grandmother's corpse, but decided it was too perverted for him. He waited in the house until his grandfather had returned home from the grocery store, before he stood up and took the gun and fatally shot his grandfather in the driveway. He then dragged his grandfather's body into the garage. He told psychiatrists that he didn't want his grandfather to be angry with him after seeing his wife of 50 years slaughtered. Edmund explained that he called his mother unsure of what to do because he felt as if the whole world had turned and seen what he had done, and that soon they'd be coming for him. He detailed his paranoia that if anyone were to arrive at that moment and even given him a funny look, that he would have blown their brains out in fear of getting caught, saying, quote, If I had been in the city, I'd have been a mass murderer at the age of 15. I would have killed until they gunned me down. I wouldn't have been able to reason my way out of it, and I was scared to death. The police arrived to see 15-year-old Edmund Kemper sitting calmly on the steps in front of his grandparents' house. He casually said, I just wanted to see what it felt like to shoot grandma. After the murder of his grandparents in August of 1964, Edmund became a resident of a Tescadero State Hospital, an imposing establishment recognized as one of the largest forensic mental health facilities worldwide. Over 1,600 psychiatric criminally insane murderers and rapists wander its halls. A senior social worker for the California Youth Authority named Tilson diagnosed Edmund in October of 1964 as a paranoid schizophrenic. The psychiatric report summary read as follows. This youth has committed a double murder, that of his paternal grandparents. For several years prior to the killings, there were numerous indications that this youth was extremely disturbed, had self-destructive impulses, and acted out homicidal impulses against two cats for over the period of a year. He is overwhelmed with feelings of worthlessness, guilt, parental rejection, and has great fears that he will suffer a psychotic episode. He has thought long and hard about suicide and has attempted it repeatedly over a number of years. Upon admission at NKCC, he was in a particularly unstable state and gave the impression of being on the verge of committing suicide. As a result, a suicide watch was posted. At present, he has stabilized to some small extent. He is currently on tranquilizers. In spite of the tranquilizers, though, Kemper continues to be extremely agitated, anxious, distraught, and preoccupied. He has a tremendous need to talk about himself. He's done so with a psychologist, his social worker, and to some extent, with a psychiatrist. He should be encouraged to channel all this talk about himself to his therapist. He is fearful that his peers might learn of his commitment offense. In this respect, he is in very good touch with reality. He is sensitive and very much aware of the unacceptable nature of the killings. Studying the record and all of Kemper's verbalizations reveals that there were suggestions that he would act out violently. It is a tragedy that attention was not paid to these suggestions and that he was not placed in treatment and helped to avert this terrible tragedy of killing both paternal grandparents. Staff is in accord that this youth could be treated in a mental hospital at this time and perhaps with some preparation and at a later date be prepared for placement in a treatment program in a youth authority institution. It would not be until later that psychiatrists would discover just how intelligent Edmund Kemper truly was, boasting an IQ of a genius level of 145. He was able to appear schizophrenic for his defense. Due to his age and seemingly kind, misunderstood persona, the resident psychiatrist built a trust relationship with Edmund and let him become his assistant. This gave Edmund access to over a thousand criminal files, down to their psychological profiles and how they scored on tests. Edmund's remarkable conduct as a prisoner earned him admiration of his psychiatrists, 
they entrusted him with the task of administering psychiatric tests to fellow inmates. Surprisingly, one of his psychiatrists noted, quote, he was a very diligent worker, which was not typical of a sociopath. He took genuine pride in his work. While at Atascadero, Edmund had joined the Jaycees, a well-known organization focused on leadership development. Leveraging his experiences, he actively contributed to the field by creating new tests and scales, one of which being the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory. He collaborated with a Tuscadero psychiatrist to develop an overt hostility scale. However, following the second arrest, Edmund confessed that his understanding of these tests allowed him to manipulate his own psychiatrists. He also revealed unsettling insights that he gained from evaluating sex offenders, including their advice to kill a woman after raping her to avoid any witnesses. Edmund started becoming sexually aroused by the photos of rape murder victims from the case files, and this escalated his lust for crime. Edmund's intelligence and abilities made him a valuable asset in the psychological testing and research, contributing significantly to advancements in understanding the human mind. He had learned what psychiatrists considered to be sane and insane, and over the course of five years, he was able to convince the hospital that he was cured. And at 21 years old, Edmund Kemper was released. The facility psychiatrists insisted that while on parole, Edmund should be sent to live in a group home and not with his mother, going as far as telling Edmund to never speak to her again if he didn't have to. But the court sent him to live with her anyways. His mother, Clarnell, decided that the two of them should relocate to Santa Cruz, California, where she took a job as an administrative assistant at the University of California, where everyone surprisingly loved her. But at home, she continued to harass her son, always blaming him for the lack of sex in her life. It's to note that Clarnell had been previously married a total of three times by this point, and now she is single and living with Edmund. Edmund had finally gone on his first date, and when the date ended terribly, he was embarrassed. He took the girl to a John Wayne film and then had dinner at Denny's. Looking back, Edmund laughed at how awful that truly was for a first impression, and explained that he refused to tell his mother in fear of being laughed at. Edmund recalled that he had been locked up since he was 15 and missed his teenage youth, so the entire experience was awkward. Edmund began asking his mother if she could help him meet women at the University of California, and she always told him the same story, that he wasn't good enough, and that no woman would take the time to give him attention. This was also something that she said while Edmund was growing up, and this built his resentment towards women. His mother was always favoring his sisters, and he felt like he wasn't good enough to be with the girls, and that's exactly what she told him. She told him that she was scared he was going to molest them because no one was good enough for him. Unfortunately, as Edmund grew up with his mindset, it blinded him to the fact that he was truly a psychopath and that his nice guy persona was a facade that he learned how to lure his victims. Edmund would say in interviews that he would see a pretty girl and then get upset if she didn't want to engage in his friendly conversations, even if she wouldn't initiate flirting with him. Edmund would then see himself as a victim, and he would think that he would have to punish the girls by killing them, because he assumed they believed that they were too good for him, just like his mother had said growing up. Still in 1969, freshly released from the confines of a Tescadero State Hospital, 21-year-old Edmund was met with an unexpected wave of change in the form of the hippie movement that had taken root during his time behind bars. He was a socially awkward young man, and he decided to go to community college in California at Cabrillo College. This only magnified the contrast between his conservative beliefs and the free-spirited ideals embraced by his peers. He was considered a square among the crowd, and Edmund struggled to integrate into the social scene, clashing his own prevailing counterculture of the era. Edmund visually stood out with his six-foot-nine brooding demeanor that intimidated anyone who came across him. With his height came his brute natural strength. He could lift a hundred-pound sacks of cement in each hand with his arms held out straight from his shoulders. 21-year-old Edmund had always dreamed of joining the ranks of the local police department as a state trooper. However, due to his height and the fact that he weighed 300 pounds proved to be a hindrance, as it was deemed too imposing for the job. He then found a job working with the California Highway Department as a road construction flagman, enabling him to secure his own apartment with a roommate. Finally, he had independence away from his mother. And yet, even in his newfound space, his mother's particular behavior persisted, with unannounced visits and insistent phone calls, displayed a troubled obsession with her son. Driven by his aspiration to become a police officer, Edmund sought camaraderie among the local police officers. The jury room was a popular bar where these officers would gather to unwind after their shifts. Edmund quickly integrated himself into their circle, 
finding solace and a sense of belonging among the officers who shared similar career aspirations. Edmund would discuss criminals and the officers would discuss tactics with him openly. Building that trust, the officers quickly considered him a friendly nuisance, but overall an intelligent and curious young man. Edmund, feeling disheartened by his inability to become a highway officer, made the choice and decided to purchase a motorcycle instead. Unfortunately, within a short period of time, he had already gone through two motorcycles and experienced two accidents, one that led to a lawsuit. Surprisingly, he received a settlement of $15,000 from the lawsuit, which he decided to use to buy a vibrant yellow Ford Galaxy. With his new car, Edmund began picking up hitchhikers, particularly young females. His intentions were far from innocent. He engaged them in conversation, not out of genuine interest, but to learn how to make them feel comfortable and to understand the habits of young women. Edmund's initial fantasies revolved around kidnapping, raping, and murdering the women he picked up. As time went on, he became disturbingly comfortable and casually started touching them in the car. Edmund soon realized that a successful kidnapper needed to be well thought out. He began practicing techniques to lock women in the car without them realizing or building their suspicions. One specific method he employed was commenting to the woman that he didn't believe their door was closed properly. While secretly holding a chapstick in his hand, he would slyly slip it behind their door handle, jamming it shut as he tried to close their door, effectively trapping them inside. Edmund Kemper revealed that he had encountered more than 150 hitchhikers and mastered the art of making them feel safe and at ease. At the time of his arrest, he would inform police that he had given a ride to over a thousand female hitchhikers. His methods took a sinister turn as he began stashing plastic bags and knives in his trunk, and he kept a 22 pistol hidden underneath his seat. He would purchase a police radio as well to listen to the police broadcasts. As his dark desires consumed him, he believed the moment had arrived to fulfill his twisted fantasies. On May 7, 1972, Two college roommates, Marianne Pesky and Anita Lucheska, both 18 years old, had been hitchhiking on the freeway in Berkeley when 23-year-old Edmund Kemper had pulled them over and offered them a ride to Stanford University. Marianne, a seasoned hitchhiker, immediately sensed something was off when Edmund pulled up in his Ford Galaxy, which was a coupe. The thought of being trapped in the back seat with only two front exits immediately raised red flags for her. Reluctantly, Marianne expressed her concerns, but Anita reassured her that everything would be fine, urging her to get into the car. As they drove, Edmund struck up a conversation with the girls, hoping to establish a connection. He quickly noticed that Marianne seemed distant and disengaged. In subsequent interviews, Edmund revealed his growing frustration, describing Marianne as stuck up and unattractive. Her guarded demeanor and refusal to fall for his nice guy routine fueled his building rage. As he had meticulously practiced this facade for years, the fact that a woman was disengaging with him only made him mad. Anita, on the other hand, he considered to be beautiful and kind because she did fall for it. He engaged the girls in consistent conversation, diverting their attention from the fact that he had changed directions and was now heading towards the mountains. Soon, their suspicions were aroused when they noticed him retrieving a 22 caliber handgun from underneath the seat. In a horrifying turn of events, Edmund held Marianne at gunpoint and proceeded to handcuff her to the back seat. Interestingly, Edmund later recounted that during this crime, he accidentally brushed his hand against Marianne's breast during the handcuffing process, which he said embarrassed him. He felt compelled to apologize to her even amidst the terrifying situation unfolding. Whenever Edmund expressed these types of feelings during confession interviews, psychiatrists concluded it was Edmund trying to appear as empathetic towards his victims to gain control of the investigators and manipulate the narrative, a tactic he learned during his time at a Tuscadero State Prison. At gunpoint, Edmund forced Anita into the trunk of the car, explaining to investigators that he didn't want her to witness the horrific fate awaiting her friend. This was the same white knight reasoning he used to describe why he killed his grandfather. He returned to Marianne and proceeded to tie a plastic bag around her head, he then began choking her with a belt, but to his surprise, the belt snapped, and Marianne managed to bite through the bag, fighting for her life. In a state of astonishment, Edmund resorted to stabbing her, only to realize that it wasn't like it was in the movies, where a person immediately falls dead, but rather, they just slowly lose blood pressure until they die from blood loss. Despite Marianne's brave resistance, Edmund continued to stab her while she fought back for her life. In a disturbing revelation, Edmund commented on feeling embarrassed during the attack, saying that he struggled to stab her in the heart due to her breast being in the way. He claimed he didn't want to humiliate her further, even during such a horrendous act, 
Again, this is another example of his white knight syndrome, trying to manipulate the investigators to see him as a genuine good person despite being a serial killer. Edmund Kemper then killed Marianne by slitting her throat ear to ear. After opening the trunk, Edmund was confronted with a terrified Anita, curled up in fear. As he helped her out, she anxiously asked about the fate of her friend. Edmund attempted to justify his actions and told Anita that Marianne had resisted, leading to a physical altercation where he accidentally broke her nose. He manipulated Anita into believing that Marianne truly needed her help. As Anita reached the side of the car, six foot nine Edmund threw all the power he had into stabbing her that caused her to fly onto the roof of the car. He explained that he had trouble penetrating her body due to the thick jean coveralls she was wearing. He resorted to stabbing her in the arms, neck, and eye sockets. He finished by putting both victims in the trunk of his car and driving off. He was pulled over by a police officer for a broken taillight, and Edmund, being very comfortable around police officers, became jovial and enthusiastic. This led into a happy conversation, and the officer would let him go. The officer failed to do a routine check of the car, for if he did, he would have found two dead girls in the trunk. This ultimately saved his life because Edmund said he was going to kill him if he looked. When Edmund got home, he knew that his roommate had been out for the evening, so he brought both bodies into his apartment. He dissected the corpses while taking pictures as souvenirs to relive his crimes and continued to dismember the bodies by decapitating their heads like the Barbie dolls and cats as a child. Edmund proceeded to have sex with each of the body parts over the course of many days before he buried the body parts in two separate locations in Santa Cruz. He would dispose of the bodies and then keep their heads on a chair in his bedroom, where he would talk to them and have sex with them. Edmund disposed of the heads days later in a grassy area, and the heads would be discovered nine days later. The body of Marianne wouldn't be discovered until August of that same year, and to this day, the body of Anita Lachesca has never been found. Edmund relived this brief respite for his violent tendencies. He explained that the built-up altercations between him and his mother led up to him venting his rage on unsuspecting co-eds, the retaliation against his mother. Edmund said in his first public interview, quote, there's a lot that leads up to that happening, but that's what happened. They represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what was most important to her, and I was destroying it. From that point forward, Whenever Edmund picked up a young girl, he would often bring up the tragic deaths of the two hitchhikers, using it as a twisted tool to boost his ego. He would cautiously engage in conversations with the police regarding the ongoing investigation, being mindful not to arouse suspicion, as he was aware of the common tendency for killers to inadvertently discuss their own crimes. In the summer of 1972, Edmund had met a student in her late teens at the beach, the two began dating, and Edmund thought that she was the most beautiful woman in the world. They shared common interests and longed for a family together, and Edmund would propose to her the following year, and she accepted. Little is known about this girl, as she has chosen to remain private about her experience. Following Edmund's arrest, she was deeply shocked and withdrew from the public. Her parents decided to send her away from Turlock, and her high school allowed her to take a break from the classes until she could cope with the emotional strain. Eventually, she was able to graduate with her class, and a newspaper clipping announcing their engagement was discovered among Edmund's belongings in his apartment after his arrest, along with a photograph of him and the stunning blonde. On September 14, 1972, after a fight with his mother, Edmund picked up Aiko Ku, a talented 15-year-old ballet student who found herself hitchhiking to San Francisco after missing her bus for an important dance recital. Unlike before, Edmund didn't hesitate to draw his gun against Aiko. He told her that his intention was to commit suicide and expressed a desire for someone to witness. He promised not to harm her if she refrained from screaming. Edmund then parked the car and stepped out, unintentionally leaving Aoko locked inside the vehicle, with the gun resting on the driver's seat. In an act that shows the mastery of Edmund's good guy deception tactics, he managed to convince Aoko to unlock the door for him. He got back into the car with the petrified 15-year-old, and he drove her to the mountains where he murdered the teenager. He attempted to suffocate her by inserting his fingers up her nose. When this failed, he strangled Aoka with her scarf, and he then took her body outside and raped her corpse. Edmund admitted during a confession that he was able to reach orgasm within seconds. Afterwards, he drove to the local bar to have drinks and eat. He went back to his car in the parking lot, opened the trunk and looked upon the body of Aoko. 
and he said, quote, I admired my catch like a fisherman. The next day, Edmund dismembered the body and disposed of the remains at separate locations. He then took Aoka's head and placed it in a bag in the back of his car and went to two scheduled court-mandated probation psychiatric appointments. Both doctors deemed Edmund as nice and normal as one could be. He appears to have made a good recovery from such a tragic and violent split within himself. He appears to be functioning in one piece now, directing his feelings towards verbalization, work, sports, and not allowing neurotic buildup with himself. Since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. I am glad he had recently expunged his motorcycle, and I would hope that he would do that permanently, since this seemed more a threat to his life and health than any threat he is presently to anyone else. On November 29, 1972, Edmund Kemper's juvenile record was permanently sealed so that he could live a normal life without a criminal past. During this time frame, Edmund made a confounding decision to move back home with his alcoholic mother. Over the passing months throughout the Bay Area, the discovery of additional victims at the hands of various killers sent shockwaves through the community. Yet, amidst the growing concern, Edmund remained completely free from any hint of suspicion regarding the brutal crimes. He continued hanging around the local police, where he would casually bring up the crimes and how the investigation was going. To his good news, the police told him that the case was a stalemate, and they were not getting anywhere, and that they were starting to get traps ready for the killer. This information aided Edmund in not getting caught as he continued killing. In the early hours of January 8, 1973, Edmund acquired a fresh 22 caliber firearm, driven by an unsettling desire to unleash his pent-up fury. A heated dispute with his mother earlier that day had left him seething, seeking an outlet for his rage. Edmund's attention fell upon Cynthia Ann Shaw, an 18-year-old student studying at Cabrillo Junior College. Not long into their drive, Edmund drew his gun and pulled off into the side of the road and forced her into the trunk, where he proceeded to shoot her in the head, killing her. He returned home and picked up Cynthia's body from the trunk and took it into his house. He heard his mother return. He abruptly threw Cynthia's body into the closet, and as he turned, he saw his mother standing in the doorway, just in time for her not to see what he had done. That night, Edmund removed the bullet from her skull and the following morning, Edmund had sex with the corpse and then took an axe and dissected the body while he was in the shower with it. Edmund had this to say regarding his victim's bleeding, quote, the blood got in my way. It wasn't something I desired to see. Blood was an actual pain in the ass, end quote. He dismembered and decapitated the body. He disposed of the torso and limbs off a cliff over the Pacific Ocean. He proceeded to keep the head for days with the purpose of having sex with it. Edmund had a hobby of holding the head in his hands and having conversations with the decapitated skull. He would even rationalize his actions. But I was losing a grasp on something that, that was too violent to keep inside forever. As I'm sitting there with a severed head in my hand, talking to it or, or looking at it. And I'm about to go crazy. Literally, I'm about to go all fly away loose and just fall apart. And I say, wow, this is insane. And I told myself, no, it isn't. You're saying that. That makes it not insane. I said, I'm saying it, and, and, and I'm looking at a separate head. I said, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've seen old paintings and drawings of Viking heroes talking to severed heads and taking them to parties. Old enemies in leather bags. Part of our heritage. This is me back then. 1972 and 73. Unable to live with the fact that I just stabbed to death and cut the throat of an innocent young woman. Innocent in the sense that she didn't plan on that happening. She didn't do anything specifically for that to happen to her. But she was a very active participant in her own death. Edmund disposed of Cynthia's head by burying it in the backyard outside his bedroom window, making a joke of how he purposely had the head facing towards the house because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Late at night, Edmund testified to speaking to the head, pretending that they were a couple to ease his loneliness. It's important to note that Edmund was not delusional, so it's possible that he made this up for his insanity defense. Days after the disposal of Cynthia's dismembered body, her remains began washing up along the coastline. Her left hand provided fingerprint analysis, and lung x-rays from her torso proved her identity. In February of 1973,
The discovery of four teenage bodies that were shot with a 22 caliber were found in Henry Cowell's Redwood State Park. At this time, all these murders that are happening in Santa Cruz are unsolved, but the four teenage bodies that were in the state park were not Edmund Kemper's, they were Herbert Mullins. And Herbert Mullin, oh God, that guy's a fruit loop. <laughs> He, he killed like 13 people in this like berserker mode because he believed that if he killed these people, then God wouldn't destroy California by making an earthquake happen and plunge it into the ocean. Due to all these unsolved murders, District Attorney Peter Chang, he referred to Santa Cruz as Murderville, USA. And this remark was picked up by a reporter and she spread through the wire that basically the city earned its name, murder capital of the world. All this information was documented by the Santa Cruz Public Library, all the historical records, and the presence of all these local serial killers like Herbert Mullen, Edmund Kemper, and John Lindley Fraser, this is what created that stigma of Santa Cruz, California being the murder capital of the world. Now all my horror buffs out there, fun fact, in the 1987 cult classic vampire film, The Lost Boys, this was filmed in Santa Cruz, but director Joel Schumacher, he changed the name from Santa Cruz to Santa Carla. And then he paid homage to the murder capital of the world in the scene where Michael's like, hey grandpa, is it true that Santa Carla is the murder capital of the world? Well, there's some bad elements around here. Wait, wait a second, let me get this straight. You're telling me that we moved to the murder capital of the world? Are you serious, grandpa? Well, let me put it this way. If all the corpses buried around here were to stand up all at once, we'd have one hell of a population problem. <laughs> Great, Dad. Ah, oh, now when the mailman brings the TV guide. Oh my God, The Lost Boys and Lord of the Rings. Those are the two movies. You give me any line, I can just take it and send it. <laughs> Anyways, so like other infamous serial killers, such as Dennis Rader, David Berkowitz, and the Zodiac Killer, Edmund sought public recognition and acclaim for his murders. And this led Edmund to socialize and drink at the jury room, the bar where all the local police officers hung out. So unbeknownst to them, the man they were looking for was sitting right across from them. His law enforcement friends, they began calling him Big Eddie, completely unaware of his identity as a serial killer. And this just reveals Edmund's audacity and his ability to maintain a facade of normalcy while mingling with those who were actively investigating his crimes. Edmund would deliberately explain that he spent time with the local police at the bar, engaging in these conversations with them about the ongoing murder investigations because it was a tactic to gather information. He both used it to assess if they were onto his crimes and to satisfy his bloody ego. Now, by interacting with the law enforcement in this way, Edmund sought to gain insights into their progress and potentially gauge where their suspicions were towards him because the police said that they considered him a friendly nuisance, that he wasn't a threat. And this highlights his manipulative behavior and the extent of which he's willing to go to maintain a sense of power and control. And even after he's arrested, he does it all the time. He knows that if he's the one telling the story and he keeps it interesting, he holds the power. And then he will do little things like the white knight syndrome where he goes, I killed them, yes, but if they were nice to me, then I wouldn't have had to have done it. And it's like, they done it to themselves. No, Edmund, they did not do it to themselves. You are not the victim in this situation, so shut the hell up. He does it a lot. If you watch the interviews, he does it all the time. He will mention how he's done something horrendous, but then say, if it weren't for this, then I wouldn't have done it. But then he backsteps and says, but I am a bad guy. But I'm a gentle person who just wanted to be loved. I wouldn't have killed if people loved me. Get over yourself. Santa Cruz, it's anxiety ridden at this point with all these unsolved murders. The Santa Cruz Sheriff's Department, they issued more warnings about hitchhiking and were recommending that people take public transit instead. Now in response to the alarming increase in hitchhiking homicides, the university, they implemented a strict policy of requiring students to exclusively accept rides from designated drivers. These designated drivers from the university, they had stickers and the emblem basically said, you're safe to ride with this person. Unfortunately, Edmund managed to obtain one of these stickers for his car because his mother who worked at the school, she occasionally relied on him for transportation to and from work. And when these girls seen his sticker, they trusted him. 
On February 5th, 1973, Edmund, with a calculated plan in mind, picked up two unsuspecting UC Santa Cruz students, 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Allison Liu. They accepted a ride from Edmund, believing they were being cautious by hitchhiking with someone who had a university sticker on their car. Almost immediately upon entering the car, Rosalind and Allison were both shot in the head by Edmund, tragically losing their lives before they even had a chance to leave the university parking lot. He brought their lifeless bodies back to his mother's residence in Santa Cruz, but when his mother was unexpectedly inside, he had to wait to bring the bodies in. In the meantime, he decapitated both their heads in the back seat of his car. At any point, witnesses could have seen the horrific act, as Edmund was simply parked on the street. This act highlighted his ego. Edmund said that he was getting too good at killing, and he continued to dismember the corpses in the street. Once he was satisfied with his sexual urges, Edmund heartlessly discarded their headless bodies along Eden Canyon Road in Castro Valley. The discovery of their remains sent shockwaves into the community, a chilling reminder of the evil that resided within Edmund's soul. In April, a diligent records clerk from the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Department was conducting their routine check of the sales records of a gun dealer. The clerk came across a 3x5 card belonging to Edmund Emil Kemper. However, all the information on the card was blacked out, indicating that his record had been redacted. Despite the blacked out sections, she was able to see 187 PC Madera, California printed on the card. Curiosity piqued, she discovered that Madera County was where Edmund Kemper had committed the heinous act of killing his grandparents. Realizing the gravity of the situation, she immediately brought the card to the detective lieutenant of the bureau, informing him that the gun had already been delivered to Edmund Kemper. She was uncertain whether he was supposed to possess it or not, emphasizing that his record was sealed, making it difficult to ascertain the legality of his ownership. On April 6, 1973, two detectives from the sheriff's office arrived to confiscate the firearms, specifically the 44 Magnum pistol. So to conceal the fact that he had multiple guns, Edmund calmly asked detectives which type of firearm they were looking for. The murder weapon was a 22 automatic, or were they looking for the 44 Magnum? Upon learning that they were searching for the rumored 44 Magnum, Edmund felt a sense of release, as it indicated that they were not specifically looking for the gun connected to the murders. Edmund had forgotten that the 44 Magnum was in the back of his trunk, while the 22 automatic was under the front seat of his car. He decided to lead the officers into his bedroom. Upon entering, he realized that his closet was open, revealing a high-powered rifle with a scope in plain view. Next to the guns were two identification cards belonging to his co-ed victims. If the officers had time to examine the closet, they would have also noticed a purse and book bag containing belongings to two of Edmund's most recent victims. Recognizing the need to distract the officers and act quickly, Edmund raised his hands and said, Oh, I forgot! And then he led the officers outside, diverting their attention away from the incriminating evidence in his bedroom. Edmund led the officers to the trunk of his car, where they took his keys and opened it, retrieving the 44 Magnum. Afterwards, they left, and Edmund was in shock, thinking that they were about to arrest him for the murders. He got off lucky. One day, Edmund found himself in a heated altercation with his mother. Frustrated and tired of her constant belittling, he reached a breaking point and threatened to harm her. In a fit of rage, he grabbed her by the shoulders and forcefully threw her onto the bed. Overwhelmed, Edmund stormed out of the house and got into his car. As he drove down the streets of Berkeley, his anger was simmering. Edmund noticed two girls hitchhiking on Ashby Avenue. Intrigued by their presence, he decided to pick them up, curious to see where the encounter would lead. The two girls were unaware of Edmund's troubled state of mind, and they got into his car. They requested a ride to their college. The girls insisted on a different route that Edmund was planning, which made him nervous. He knew that the direction they wanted him to go would take him past the locations where he had committed previous murders. Luckily for Edmund, he was able to withhold his murderous urges, and he dropped them off at their intended destination. Edmund watched the girls leave, and a sinister feeling settled over him. He knew that if he himself did not die, or he didn't kill his mother, then more girls like that were going to be murdered at his hands. Edmund was awoken by his mother coming home from a party at approximately 4 a.m. on April 20th, 1973. Edmund rose from his bed and walked towards her room. The brooding six foot nine man stood at the doorway. Clarnell caught sight of him and closed her book and she said, quote, I suppose you're gonna wanna sit up all night and talk now. 
When Edmund recalled this exact moment in a 1984 interview, he visibly gets a flood of sadness mixed with an intense rage that is evident that he wants to cry. Edmund then told his mother that he only wanted to say goodnight. And at that exact moment, he knew that he was finally going to murder his 52-year-old mother. Edmund waited until his mother fell asleep. It was approximately 5.15 a.m. when he snuck into her bedroom and bludgeoned her head with a claw hammer multiple times. The first time he hit her, he looked at her to see if she'd move, and she didn't. He proceeded to decapitate her head and cut off her hands, and Edmund then used her head to perform oral sex on himself as he screamed at her. He then placed the head on the table and began throwing darts at it while shouting at her, you can't yell at me anymore, you cannot control me. Then he cut out her vocal cords and attempted to put them down the garbage disposal, a morbid symbolism of destroying the primary form of abuse that she subjected him through since birth. The rest of the day was spent dismembering and washing her corpse, where he then hid it in the back of her bedroom closet. When Edmund was asked why the two most important women in his life, his mother and grandmother, were chosen by him to die, he responded by saying, quote, the same thing that kept them from ever being friends. They're both aggressive, matriarchal women. They've been the daughters of strong matriarchal women. I still love my mother. It's hard for somebody to comprehend that you murder your mother through love. It isn't a rational process. It's a very painful process. I've still got to live with that. The next day on April 21st, Edmund called his mother's best friend and colleague, 59-year-old Sarah Hallett, knowing that she would be the only one to truly miss Clarnell. He told her that he wanted to surprise his mother by taking the two of them out for Easter dinner that night. When Sarah arrived, Edmund confessed, quote, I came up behind her and crooked my arm around her neck like this. He then bent his arm in front of himself at chin level. I squeezed and I just lifted her off the floor. She just hung there, and for a moment I didn't realize she was dead. I had broken her neck, and the head was just wobbling around with the bones of her neck disconnected in the skin sack of her neck. Later, Edmund attempted to have intercourse with her body, but it failed. On April 22, 1973, Edmund escaped Santa Cruz County after murdering his mother and embarked on a four-day journey carrying three guns and a knife in his car. He was anxiously tuning into the radio in hopes of hearing any updates on the progress of the police investigation. He stated this, When I heard on the news there was a break in the case, it would mean in only a few hours I'd be dead. I was going to get my weapons and go to high ground and attack authorities when they came for me. Edmund had planned on stopping the car as soon as he heard the bulletin. He had planned on shooting out with the police. The climactic showdown never materialized. The bodies of his mother and of her companion remained concealed, plaguing Edmund into a state of panic. Even when she was dead, she was still bitching at me. I couldn't get her to shut up. Overwhelmed by the weight of his guilt, Edmund reached a breaking point and decided to call the Santa Cruz police from a phone booth in Pueblo, Colorado. He confessed to the unspeakable acts of being the co-ed killer and murdering his mother and her best friend. Edmund's friendly demeanor at the police department initially led them to dismiss the call. It took multiple calls for the police to realize that his confessions were serious. This ability to establish a gentle giant facade showcased his manipulative nature. He had the police department so convinced he was an innocent man that when he called to confess, they didn't believe him. But it happened, and finally, Edmund was arrested and taken back to California. During Edmund's trial in 1973, Three psychiatrists unanimously concluded that he was sane and guilty, despite his initial attempt to plead insanity. In his desperate attempt to secure an insanity plea, Edmund came up with a particular idea of claiming to be a cannibal. He revealed that he may have sliced bodies and prepared them in a macaroni dish. However, as time went on, he eventually admitted that it was all a fabrication to get the insanity plea. Subsequently, he was re-diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorders, along with a sex addiction, shedding light on the disturbing nature of his actions. Edmund was cross-examined by District Attorney Peter Chang, where Edmund reflected on his diagnosis. How would you diagnose yourself, Mr. Kepler? I believe very dearly and honestly there are two people inside of me, and at times one of them takes over. You disagree with the court-appointed psychiatrist who diagnosed you as a sex maniac? I don't believe I am. I don't believe I am. Why do you tend to blame others for what you have done? I feel there are others involved. I don't believe I was born this way. Do you think society thinks what you've done is grossly evil? Right now, yes. Horrendous? Yes. But there are times that those things don't even enter my mind. 
On November 8, 1973, after five hours of deliberation, the jury consisting of six men and six women declared Edmund Kemper guilty on all counts of first-degree murder. To everyone's surprise, Edmund requested the death penalty, specifically asking for death by torture as punishment for his heinous crimes. However, due to the suspension of capital punishment in California at the time, he was instead sentenced to eight concurrent life sentences in prison. Edmund has been serving his time at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, where he remains incarcerated to this day. In the facility, Edmund shared a prison block with other notorious criminals like Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. Edmund found Herbert Mullen specifically to be rude and unliked by fellow prisoners. Edmund was so annoyed by how Herbert would sing loud, and when he was off tune, he never stopped. Edmund decided to take Herbert on as a project since he was going to be spending lots of time in prison. Edmund wanted to control Herbert Mullen, make him do whatever he wanted. Edmund discovered Herbert's love for planters' peanuts, so he purchased 20 to 30 packs of them from commissary. Edmund began training Herbert like a dog, giving him treats whenever he did something good. And by the end, Herbert was asking Edmund for his approval on almost everything he did in prison. Edmund Kemper participated in numerous interviews with psychiatrists and FBI profilers, including John Douglas and Bob Ressler. The interviews and studies conducted on Edmund Kemper have played a significant role in the development of criminal profiling as it's known today. The Netflix series Mindhunter is based off of those interviews. Despite his dark past, Edmund has managed to maintain a relatively stable presence within the general population as a model prisoner. It's important to note that his involvement in narrating 5,000 audiobooks for a charity program aimed in assisting the visually impaired does not negate the severity of his crimes. While these unexpected contributions may showcase different aspects of his abilities, it does not diminish the gravity of his actions or the pain he has caused. Edmund waived his right for a parole hearing in 2012. He was then denied parole in 2017 and is next eligible in 2024, where he will be 75 years old. During an interview with a Cosmopolitan magazine reporter, Edmund Kemper was asked about his thoughts and feelings towards women after his crimes, particularly when encountering a pretty girl. His response was a disturbing juxtaposition of his conflicting desires, revealing a part of him that longed for a normal interaction, while the other part entertained violent and disturbing fantasies. This quote provides a chilling insight into Edmund Kemper's mindset and the dark thoughts that consumed him. One side of me, I'd like to talk to her, date her. The other side of me says, I wonder how her head would look on a stick. That is the true story of co-ed killer Edmund Kemper, the ogre of Santa Cruz, as he's called. Certified fucking fruitcake. Let's stamp this guy's prison cell. Something that's really interesting about the movie American Psycho is there is a scene where Patrick Bateman says, yeah, here's a quote from Ed Gein. And he starts saying the quote about, I would like to date her and I'd like to see what her head would look like on a stick. But that's Edmund Kemper who says it, not Ed Gein. And yet they kept it in the script in the movie. Members of Edmund's family have actually said that if he gets out in 2024, that they will personally murder him for killing their grandparents. And honestly, I think the world would just be gobsmacked if he got parole, especially in this day and age. I want to thank four Fear Call voice actors. We've got Captain Cook's food, Christopher. He's been here. <laughs> when in doubt, click of the phone. Christopher, I got a script for you. That's basically how it goes down. But prior to me even starting Lullaby the Fear podcast, because I've known Chris for a long time, he we had a conversation i was on his show and we were discussing serial killers and true crime and he mentioned that he could do edmund kemper's voice and he busted it out and i just remember being like oh it was so creepy it was so good so then when i started lullaby i'm like you know what i know just who to call oh yeah it's all coming together now we have eric one half of the team tna podcast and I'm on their show all the time. We're always roasting each other. And I love having Eric do challenging roles. And he got to read one of the psychiatric reports. So he did a fucking amazing job. Yeah, I'm dropping F-bombs because that's how enthusiastic I am about Fear Cult members when they participate in dramatizations. I love you so much. Then we have Brett and Amber. They are both new to voice acting. And they crushed it. Of course they crushed it. 
Brett from the Film Review Podcast dissect that film, who portrayed attorney Peter Chang, and he did an amazing job. And he messaged me saying that, well, I feel the pressure. This is going to be really like, stressful. And um, as soon as I heard that, I knew, so he's going to crush it. I don't have to worry about that. And then Amber did the same thing. She went, I'm kind of stressed out. And I'm like, that just means you're going to put so much effort into doing it. And it's going to blow your mind. So thank you to all four of you. Brett, Amber, I'm very happy you decided to participate on the dramatizations. You've joined Christopher, you joined Eric, and you are among the ranks of the lullaby voice actors. Thank you so much. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. Back on our never-ending quest to find a truly scary movie, I am recommending a psychological thriller from 2006, Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro. And I remember seeing this film in theaters, and I speak Spanish, but I didn't know that this film was in Spanish. And my friend, she doesn't speak it. <laughs> We're in theaters, and then they start speaking. And my friend looks at me, and she just goes, Okay, well, good night, because she doesn't like reading subtitles, specifically in the theater, because then you miss the whole movie. But she ended up liking it. So if that says anything, she stayed up for the film and read the subtitles. The film takes place in 1944 as the Allies have invaded Nazi-held Europe, and it takes place in Spain. And a troop of soldiers are sent to a remote forest, basically to flush out the rebels. And they are led by Captain Videl, who is a murdering sadist, and he recently married a new woman named Carmen, and her daughter joins the family from a previous marriage and he is brutal. And she basically finds solace and peace in this labyrinth that's on the plot of land. And magical shit happens. And it's Guillermo del Toro. Like, the guy can't do anything wrong. And if you think he does, well, that's your opinion. And I'm not going to get mad at you for it. And you can't get mad at me for recommending this movie. Because I enjoyed it. And if you don't enjoy it, that's cool too. Makes the world diverse, you know? We're not killing people. So let's move forward. So I tried to scare you, now you try to scare me. You can reach out and send me your horror movie recommendations on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at Lullaby the Fear Podcast. Thank you again to this week's dramatization actors, and thank you for listening to this week's lullaby. Sweet dreams. Lights out. <laughs>